Welcome to the G3 Podcast, a weekly podcast focused on the Christian life where we examine doctrinal and cultural issues that impact God's church. My name is Josh Bice, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jeremy Voilo. Hey, speaking of life and culture, as we think about uh, the culture that we live in, Jeremy, you, you, you just look at the news. You see things written up on you know, social media. You find articles, and you just hear things that are being discussed today, and it seems as if our, our culture is so confused about what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman and the boundaries, the distinctions and how they complement one another. So it seems as if our our culture is very much confused. Well, even to say, Josh, that there are boundaries or distinctions, I mean, that, that, that seems to be the, the point of contention and the controversial statement to even claim distinction in our day and age, where when it comes to sexuality, sexual ethics, sexual identity, and then the the roles within gender, uh, it's just absolutely foreign and becoming increasingly foreign to our culture to even see those distinctions at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then we think about the the redefining of marriage. I mean, what does it mean to right. get married anymore? I mean, right. uh, once upon a time, that 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 would have uh, meant that a man and a woman are coming together to be joined in a relationship that we know as marriage, but right. that is not the case anymore, and our culture is very confused. Yeah, and even as we approach the the theme of the G three conference in January, having to do with worship, you can't escape the reality that all of this is connected to worship and misplaced worship, namely idolatry. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's essentially Romans chapter one being fleshed out yeah. where people are exchanging the proper place of worshiping God to worship themselves and the created things. And the result of that is precisely what we're seeing. It's, it's mass confusion over issues that God has laid out in his word as being very simple, very foundational, very plain. And and given to us for our highest form of functioning and thus our highest form of joy mm. in life. Yeah. Um, so it's it's critical at this time that we're thinking about what does it mean to worship and who should be being worshipped. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm very excited about this show today as we have the privilege to talk to Allie Beth Stuckey, who is the host of Relatable. This is a show that addresses culture, news, theology, politics from a conservative perspective. So welcome to the show, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So as we think about um, what you do, the the sphere that you find yourself in in this, uh, in this age, is it fair to call you a conservative? Yes, I think that it is fair to call me a conservative now. Um, and, I, and I would also say that I am a Republican, that I typically vote for the Republican Party, or I always have up to this point, although I wouldn't say that is an unconditional affiliation because party lines change and party values, unfortunately, change. But I would say that I am staunchly and strongly a conservative. I can't really think of any issue on which I don't find myself aligning in the conservative direction. So, yes. Yeah. Well, uh, it's quite possible to be a fiscal conservative or a political conservative 
in general or even a social conservative without being a Christian, but you consider yourself to be a conservative and you call yourself a Christian. So tell us what that means. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And when was it in your life that you uh, came to be a follower of Jesus? Yeah. So being a conservative and a Christian certainly doesn't mean that I think that God is my definition of conservative or certainly not that God is a Republican. Obviously, we all know that God transcends politics, that he transcends all kinds of partisanship. And one day we're not going to have political division. We're not going to have political, uh, we're not going to have political labels or uh, any kind of distinction like that. And I rejoice in that future that we have hope in. But for now, there are those kinds of distinctions and whether or not people agree with the labels or not, there is a, a certain worldview that I believe informed is in, more informed by scripture than the other. Now, when we get to technical policies, like what works better economically, immigration, things like that, of course, I think that there can be what is called nuance, or there can be very in good faith conversations between Christians on either side of the aisle. But in general, the conservative worldview um, of one that is of, uh, of dignity of the individual and inherent rights of the individual based on what our creator has endowed to us, I do find that to be um, biblical as well. So that's why I find myself consistently conservative. So that answers one part of the question. Uh, the other part of the question, when did I come to faith in Christ? Gratefully, very thankfully, I was raised by Christian parents in a Christian home. There was never a day that I can remember that I didn't know who Jesus was. I think a lot of times that's that kind of testimony is or we think it is not as interesting or it's not as cool or it's not as compelling, but I'm very grateful for it. Now that I'm a new mom, that's certainly what I hope for my daughter, that there's never a day that she doesn't know who Jesus is and the love of Christ and what he did for her on the cross. So um, there hasn't been a day where I haven't known that. Now, my relationship really became my own. I would say in college, it kind of started to happen when I was in high school. I also went to a Christian school, but um, things started changing for me when I was about a junior in high school, just started taking things more seriously, reading things like C.S. Lewis and obviously the Bible. Um, I had a, I had a, Bible teacher junior year who treated us, I would say, for the first time like adults and asked us very interesting and compelling questions about the faith that we all thought that we had. And that for me is when the wheels kind of started turning. And it wasn't really until college that it became my own and that it became uh, a relationship. And even after college, I would say that relationship has flourished so much. Um, there has to be a moment, I think, when you're raised in a Christian home like I was, that you um, that you get it, that it becomes real, that it becomes something that's a part of your life and not just this compartment that you think that you have to hang on to because your parents will be mad at you if you don't. So that's kind of what happened to me during college and after college. Yeah, well, you're very well known to have a voice in the, the world of politics. So give us a backdrop, if you will, just how you became so passionate about politics and policies and and sort of a, a, a trajectory, if you will, of, of how you came to sort of uh, a public platform that you occupy presently. 
Yeah, well, what I'm really interested in is the intersection of politics, culture, and Christianity. I am certainly, I wouldn't consider myself a constitutional scholar or policy buff, although I, I think that I have a, a pretty a, a good grasp on those things because I'm thinking about them, reading about them a lot, and have researched them for a long period of time. But I'm really interested in that intersection, and I always have been. My dad was a state legislator for a while, started in college, and my parents, although we didn't talk about politics very much at the kitchen table growing up. Um, I knew our values. They raised me in such a way as entrepreneurs themselves with the values that are typically associated with conservatism, uh, like hard work and individual liberty and things like that. Um, And it wasn't until college that I started noticing, I guess, things shifting in our culture and our politics that I just hadn't paid attention to before, kind of the liberalization and uh, the well, I guess leftization isn't really a word, but you know what I'm talking about. Things getting more progressive on the cultural and social front that I just really hadn't thought about before. So I noticed a lot of my very well-informed and otherwise conservative friends started having these liberal points of views that I had never even considered before, whether it was about marriage or gender or sexuality or even economics. And then when I moved to Athens, Georgia, after college, you would consider that to be a pretty conservative town, and it's not. And I noticed a lot of young Christians um, leaning to the left in ways that just totally opposed scripture. So at first, I decided to just kind of approach uh, the political side of it. I, I can't, I don't really know why. I guess it was because it was, it was during the election. It was 2015. So the primaries were happening. I noticed that a lot of young people were apathetic. I noticed that a lot of people just didn't plan to vote in the primaries. And so I just had this idea while I was working full-time at a PR firm that I would go speak to a sorority, sorority girls. I lived, like I said, in Athens. So UGA, UGA is in Athens. I would go speak at sorority houses about why people should vote in the primary. So it really didn't have anything to do with political leanings or theology, certainly. It just was, hey, here's why you should vote in the primaries. Here's why this is a privilege. And here's why this is a right that you shouldn't take for granted. And here's here's my pitch. I just did that for fun because I've always liked speaking in front of people. I did it for free. I did it to for whoever would have me. And that just kind of grew a little bit. I started getting um, requests from local organizations or other sororities or other on-campus organizations saying, hey, will you come talk to our students? And so I did, again, for free while I was working full-time. And I just had a lot of fun doing that. And then I started a blog shortly after that, kind of down the same vein. Um, It was called The Conservative Millennial. So was kind of nonpartisan when I was speaking to college students. And then I shifted um, into being a blatant conservative or being an outspoken conservative. And then that has just kind of evolved over time. I always um, explored kind of that intersection of what it means to be a Christian and a conservative and how the Bible informs my views. And then when I started my podcast in 2017 or 2018 uh, with Blaze TV, that just kind of became the place where I could explore that intersection in a much deeper way. Before I was kind of, I was making videos, I would post on blogs, I would write, do interviews, things like that. All of those can be kind of soundbitey. But on my podcast, I was like, okay, this is my opportunity to really dive deep and to explain my thinking on these things. And as it turns out, there are a lot of young women, especially, I mean, people of all ages, but what I found is a lot of young women who were kind of looking for that. We're looking for some kind of clarity on, okay, how do I 
Um, how do I allow God's word to inform what I think about what's going on in the world? Because it's pretty crazy out there. Yeah, and Allie, that's that's sadly become almost a foreign concept, hasn't it? Allowing God's word to define how we view the world. Yes, it, it definitely it definitely has. And I think that whenever you hear someone talk about politics and religion, you assume that they're trying to fit uh, they're trying to fit their religion into their politics. And certainly right. we all know people who do that. And that is never, ever my goal. And maybe I have been guilty of that at some point. I pray to God that that's that uh, that that's not true, that I've never done that. But really, it is possible it is possible to look at both of those things at the same time, not even possible, but I think necessary. We shouldn't compartmentalize those parts of our lives. We should allow the word of God to inform um, every single part of us, private spheres and public spheres. Well, yeah, absolutely. It goes back, doesn't it, to the sufficiency of, of scripture, how right. uh, scripture is is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. So right. for the Christian, uh, we can't compartmentalize our lives. Um, from scripture to the culture, uh, it all needs to be informed by God's truth as revealed in, in the word. Right. Um, I, I have a question you mentioned, and we were talking for just a minute before we, we started recording about where we are in life. Um, my wife and I have a little 14 month old daughter, and I know you have a little two month old daughter. Yes. Uh, how, how has motherhood changed the way you view the world? Oh, man. We were talking before about the cliches that come out when you're talking about being a parent, and I'm probably just going to unleash a bunch of cliches. I mean, the second they lay that child on your chest, that is when the whole world changes. Yes, of course, when you become pregnant, everything changes then too, and it's amazing and wonderful and exciting. You get to share the special time together. But when they are out of the womb and you are holding them, it is it is the most, uh, it is the most, I, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. It's the most surreal moment as well as the most natural thing in the world. If that, I know that kind of sounds like a paradox, but that really, that's really what it is. I think maybe for the first time, and that's not to say that parenthood is the only way to see this, but for the first time you get this very tangible glimpse of what the gospel is in a few ways. You say, okay, this is maybe the closest thing that I have ever been able to feel for what God feels for his children. And at the same time, you can also see another side of it is how gracious and how merciful and how much better God is than me that he would send his only son that he loves like this more than this to die for us. So you just see a very unique picture of the gospel that I didn't see before. And again, that's not to say that if you're not a parent, you can't see that in tangible ways. But for me, it was just this all different sides and different parts of the dynamic gospel coming together in that one moment. And you're like, oh my gosh, I don't even remember what life was like before this. Um, And you know, I, I know that we probably are, I know that we all are on the same page, but when you, when you experience that for the first time, just the precious, preciousness of life and the amazing love that you feel for your child, it also just breaks your heart. I think this is one of the things that I'm most passionate yeah. about. I know you guys are too, of the devaluation of that life, that just Absolutely. a few moments earlier, that, that, that this person who's been a person from conception, was it considered a person in a lot of our states and could have been uh, her life could have been taken from her and no one would have ever cried. No one would have ever thought about it. She would have been thrown away like toxic waste. And so I know that's not 
necessarily um, a, a different a different view than I had before, but it does kind of bring it home a little bit more. If it's possible to be any yeah. more intensely pro-life, I think that when you have a child, um, it just breaks your heart all the more to know that there are children like her every day that are just disposed of. Yeah, very good, Allie. As we think about the world that we live in today, it's gone through some radical changes since the late 1800s regarding women's rights. And so as as a woman who has a voice and a platform and a podcast and a show where you do a lot of talking about, well, about politics and about faith and about culture, how would you describe feminism? Would you talk about, when you talk about it openly, is it something that a younger generation should, should see through a profitable lens or through, you know, a, a lens of danger, something that they should be warned about. What would you say about feminism? Definitely danger. Now I have evolved, I would say, as I have learned more over the past few years, I think a few years ago, I would have naively said, you know, third wave feminism is bad or second wave feminism might be bad, but it's okay to be a feminist. Maybe we need to reclaim or redeem uh, feminism. And I have totally, totally abandoned that just because it's not biblically true. We don't need a modern or secular word to describe um, what God has rightly or how God has rightly viewed women forever, much better than how the world views women, that equal in dignity, but different in roles and complementary in roles to men. The world just doesn't have any kind of similar or parallel worldview to that. And it's so much worse. It's filled with the, the, the world doesn't know how to grant equality to women or equal dignity to women without trying to make women the same as men. That's why you see, for example, a push for something like abortion. So if a man can physically walk away from a pregnancy, a woman should be able to physically walk away from a pregnancy as well. That's why, partly why we see uh, transgenderism as a, a new cultural norm, we're told, that there's really no difference between men and women because in a worldly worldview, in a secular worldview, they think that's the only way to equality is to make men and women the same. And unfortunately, feminism has helped to get us here because feminism has never known how to say, yes, a woman is equal in dignity and equal in worth, and she should be treated just as valuable as a man should be treated, but she doesn't have necessarily the same role. She's not as she's not the same as a man. It's never figured out how to do that. So that is why I have no interest in being a feminist. If I care about um, women being treated fairly and women being treated with respect and justice for women, all I have to do is to be a biblical Christian. That's all I have to do. I don't need to be a feminist for that. Um, so I would say to young Christians, especially to look at feminism skeptically and everything that feminists offer as a solution for women, for women who are hurting, for women who are oppressed, because there are women who are hurting and oppressed. Ask yourself if it's really a solution for women or if it's just an arbitrary punishment for men. That's another thing that feminists like to do. They mm -hmm. don't really care too much about caring for women. They mostly care about um, degrading men, which is another unfortunate aspect of it. So no, I, I have a, a very critical eye towards feminism and I, I just don't see I don't see the need to be a Christian feminist or anything like that. I think they're pretty paradoxical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
well, years ago, just you know, researching and reading about feminism, I, I ran across some really interesting uh, articles, and, and it was very sad to just read and to see and to trace how these militant feminists were arguing that the job of caring for children was sort of a form of oppression or slavery or right. imprisonment, you know, and, it, and it's, it's very discouraging to hear that sort of language. But some feminists actually have compared the mental state of homemakers to soldiers in World War II who had suffered severe emotional damage in combat. So the question is, why are they so interested in attacking the family? Well, I think it's I think it's for a lot of reasons. I think that one of them is going back to what we were saying earlier is that feminists haven't figured out equality without equality through homogeny. So equality through sameness. And so they see any kind of complementary relationship in which a man is in any way, uh, they would say, you know, it's bad if a man is in any way in a form of leadership and a woman is over the home. They would see that as a form of oppression or see that as a form of uh, the patriarchy, which they also see as a form of oppression. We have a very different and good view of the patriarchy from a biblical perspective, but they would see that as oppression. Anytime there is a deficit or um, uh, a differentiation between two groups, whether it's two races, whether it's two nationalities, whether it's two genders like male and female, people on the left, and that's feminists included, think that there is an injustice to account for that kind of differentiation. That's why you hear them talk about the wage gap, for example. Well, the reason why there's a wage gap isn't any injustice. It's because despite the messaging of what you just described of calling stay-at-home moms basically slaves, um, despite that messaging, there are still many, many women, much more than men, many more than men, who choose to stay home with their families and who choose to take care of their kids rather than go out and work. That's why there's a so-called wage gap. Um, But the leftist worldview is built on this idea that if everyone is not the exact same, this is also where we get the mentality for socialism. If everyone is not the exact same, the differences are accounted for by injustice, not choices, but injustice. Um, And that's just, that's one of the, um, that's one of the fatal flaws, I think, of their worldview. And that's certainly true when it comes to feminism and how they view women as well. Allie, that's that's so insightful. And um, would you, from your faith perspective, be considered reformed? Is that correct? Yes, I would consider myself reformed. I think I was reformed before I even knew what reformed was, actually. Well, I think I think that's true for, for a lot of us, uh, because we're just seeing we're we're just seeing ourselves as bible believing christians and then we yeah. say oh there's a there's a label on this okay yes exactly um, but from a f- reformed perspective then how does your faith in god give you resolve comfort hope in such a politically divided such a broken world oh the sovereignty of god i don't know how people can buy without it the absolute sovereignty with God that I don't have to exist in this conflicting or confusing tension of wondering whether or not God is causing something or allowing something. If he's sitting back and just kind of watching it go by, I trust in the absolute 
sovereignty of God, that even my confusion and my lack of understanding when it comes to horrible things going on in the world can defer to the sovereignty of God and the knowledge that he is not, uh, he doesn't freak out over things that happen. He's not worried. He doesn't say, oh, I didn't see that coming, but that all of it is an intentional and purposeful part of his plan of redemption. And I can trust without a shadow of a doubt that one day he's coming back and he's going to rule in perfect peace. And I don't have to worry about any of this anymore. So when I feel overwhelmed and when I feel like, oh my gosh, I'm worried about the future for my daughter, which of course I I still think about that stuff. I don't want my daughter growing up in a socialist country, but then I think, you know what? I mean, he has, he has established every generation at the time that he has established them, and it hasn't been arbitrary. It's been purposeful. So if he um, allotted you and I to be here when we are, I have to believe that for my daughter. I have to believe that for her children and her children's children as well. That's what gives me comfort. Absolutely. It's like what Charles Spurgeon said, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the Christian lays their head. Yes. It's it's really that foundational uh, source of comfort and peace, knowing a, God is sovereign, and and B, that the script is already written, as as yeah, we know from reading exactly. Scripture, the Lamb wins. Exactly. We, we know that Christ will be victorious. Amen. So, so in this whirlwind of division and political um, uh, brokenness, what advice would you give to a young woman who's watching this political scene unfold through the lens of the social media? Yes, I would say... Be obedient. Be obedient. That's that's all you can do. Is I've heard. I certainly didn't coin this phrase of what I'm about to say, but do the next right thing. And a lot of people say that probably in a secular sense, but do the next right thing as a Christ following woman. Um, share the gospel. Be hospitable to your neighbor. Um, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't talk about politics, but that also doesn't mean that politics has to infiltrate every single part of your life. There is a balance to that. I think that you can be kind and open and obedient, but also speak the truth about what you believe, whether it's about biblical marriage, whether it's about gender, whether it's about personal responsibility, whatever it is from a biblical perspective that might happen to also be political. Don't be afraid to talk about those things. Just be obedient. Be kind. Don't listen. Uh, when the world tells you that in order to be loving, in order to be compassionate, in order to be, quote, inclusive, that you have to be a social justice advocate as the world defines social justice, you don't have to be. If you want to be compassionate, if you want to be open, if you want to be loving, follow the word of God. It has a much uh, better road for you, a much better and more clear path for you than uh, the social justicians or the secular social justice advocates do today. Um, You are going to be thrown into a tailspin of chaos and confusion if you try to follow the ever-changing standards that the world gives us for righteousness. Uh, Thankfully, we know that we serve a God who doesn't change, who's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So no matter what happens, we can go to the word of God, which is sufficient for us uh, to be our guide. And as long as we stick to that, come what may, uh, we'll be fine. Well said, Allie. We will be right back with more from Allie Beth Stuckey. So we worship the God who is holy. We worship the God who is righteous. We worship the God who pours out his wrath. And at the same time, we bow ourselves in humble adoration because we deserve that wrath too. But he saves us in spite of that. The Church of Jesus is redeemed and called to worship God. 
Therefore, worship matters. This January, we will gather for a very important conference on worship in which we will address important questions like, is God concerned with how we worship Him? As we consider the different ways in which we worship God, from the public reading of Scripture, prayer, the preaching of God's Word, the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, is anything optional? Are we free to rearrange, reinvent, or repackage worship to accommodate cultural trends or the preferences of people? We must not overlook the privilege of worship. Not only does God receive our worship, but as a result, we are changed and transformed as we engage in the worship of our triune God. Look at this. You will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Do you see this? Well, I don't want any of that doctrine stuff. Well, then you, you have to go to hell. What we believe will determine our eternal destiny, the doctrine, the teaching that we hold to. Why do we study doctrine? Our life depends upon it. Join us this January as we will enjoy fellowship, spiritual growth, and the worship of God at the 2020 G3 Conference. For information and reservations, visit g3conference.com. Jeremy, in 1989, there was a a lady named Kimberly Crenshaw who actually coined this term intersectionality. The idea that Crenshaw was driving at was that if you're a woman in this society, uh, just in general, that you're going to be marginalized, you're going to be held back uh, in various different ways. But if you happen to be a woman who is also uh, black, or if you're a woman who's black and you're also a lesbian, then that's going to be like three different points of intersection where you're going to be at the greatest place of discrimination and marginalization in this culture. And so as we think about intersectionality and as we think about the issues of social justice, as Ali was just discussing that very issue a moment ago, Uh, Last year, I was a part of a group. In fact, Jeremy and I both were a part of a group uh, that organized a meeting in Dallas, Texas, where we actually discussed this issue and then ended up coming together to uh, publish the statement on social justice and the gospel, which was intending to speak against the radical social justice agenda that's plaguing our nation today from various different spheres related to politics the corporate world, uh, the university system, and yes, even the church. So, Ali, why is it that you signed the statement on social justice, and what issues do you see plaguing a younger generation as it pertains to social justice? Well, I thought it was so important for the church to make a clear stand on that because there has been so much confusion because the uh, there are a lot of voices within Christianity, a lot of voices that people have respected and trusted for a very long time to be um, 
trustworthy authorities on scripture saying that, yes, the Bible does call us to social justice and intersectionality and even reparations and things like that. And so um, there were, unfortunately, a lot of people following those voices and just not really understanding what to think. And so the statement on social justice, I thought, did a great job of saying, here's what the word of God says. Here's what we know about justice. Here's what we know to be true. And I couldn't have agreed anymore with it. And when I saw it, I was like, yes, finally, I'm so glad that um, I'm so glad that there's an authority and that there are people with authority coming out and saying this. And so it was my honor to sign it. And I think that um, it's still, though, unfortunately, we still have a long battle ahead when it comes to this particular subject, because people are kind of being swept away by what I would call unsound doctrine to say, basically, like the cross of Christ, Jesus dying for you, it wasn't enough. You actually have to earn righteousness by being, like you said, intersectional. You have to earn righteousness by being a social justice advocate. You have to earn righteousness by being whatever kind of collectivist uh, description or Marxist description that you want to give someone. You have to pay reparations before you can really be considered a Christian, whatever it is. Mm. Um, I find that very detrimental. And um, I hate to use this word because it's used so much, but very divisive, unnecessarily divisive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I think that's the danger and that's what we still see happening. But uh, the value of something like the statement of social justice holds. Yeah. So you can actually be a Christian who actually is conservative and see a need to help people, to help the oppressed and to help those who are being marginalized or being mistreated in our culture, but yet still reject this leftist view of social justice, correct? Right. Well, there are two questions, I think, when it comes to, so if I'm talking to someone on the left and I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt and they're giving me the benefit of the doubt, which usually I'm not giving the benefit of the doubt, but if we are both in good faith and we're saying, okay, we both have compassion for the least of these, we both want to help people. The two questions that we probably disagree on is who and how. So who is going to help these groups? Who is going to help the marginalized and the least of these, those who are being oppressed or treated unfairly? And how are we going to do it? I simply don't believe and have not seen throughout history that in for for the most part that the government is an efficient or an effective means to lift people out of poverty and oppression. That doesn't mean there's not a role for the government. We know from the book of Romans that there is a role for the government, that it is to punish the wrongdoer. But when it gets much bigger than that, when the government gets much bigger than that, when it becomes almost a nanny state, when it becomes the primary caretaker for people, the primary instructor of our children, redistributing wealth from Uh, people at the top and giving it to people at the bottom, taking away the incentive of work. There's inherent goodness in work that we see it's pre-fall. When it starts to warp how human beings were made to function because the government is so large, that's when we have a problem. And social justice advocates typically don't see there to be a problem with big government. It's almost the bigger the government, the better. And for every injustice or even just a moment of inequality that we might see, we need the government to step in, a social justice advocate would say, to step in and do something about it. Well, I just don't believe that. I don't think it's effective. I don't think it's efficient. I also don't think the government in general has a very high view of of religious liberty, for example. And so I think that can be extremely dangerous. I think dependence on the government in general is just not good for the human soul. I don't think it's good for our collective soul either. 
So that's the difference that we have there with who and then how kind of goes hand in hand with that is, um, okay, what means do we think are the most effective means uh, to help these people? And I think there is a conversation to be had that, okay, is the church, if it's not the government, is the church really doing all that they can? Are individuals, are Christians really doing all that they can? And so we can make the the need for the government as obsolete as possible. There's a conversation to be had there. Um, but I would say that that is, that's the main difference is who should help these people? How should we best help them? It's not if we should help them or not. Yeah, that's so good, Allie. And and one of the uh, things I love about what you're doing is that you're taking the time to carefully walk through and think through each of these issues. And there's really, isn't there, this this tendency to almost be like the frog in the boiling pot when it comes to ideology, where if we just hear in the popular media something uh, mentioned over and over, we can subtly start to believe it if we're not intentionally addressing each aspect of our worldview with God's truth. And so for you to be addressing those is so helpful. And so I want to ask, is there a particular lie that you see specifically younger women embracing today that you're passionate about and that you want them to see the truth on, and and maybe even more specifically, uh, young women who would call themselves Christians and Bible believing Christians. Yes, yeah, so I'm actually almost in the final stages of a book that's coming out in April of 2020, and one of, we talked about five different lives that young women, especially young Christian women, are uh, met with today. But one of the biggest ones, it's it's. Uh, a trend of what I call, I guess that's a little bit uh, repetitive of what I'm about to say, but it's this thing that's popularized that I like to call trendy narcissism. And even though it doesn't sound like it has a political connotations, it actually does. It is this worship of the God of self and what I call the cult of self-affirmation. Um, that is seen, unfortunately, in women's ministries, some in some women's Bible studies and Christian influencers uh, of women online that you are enough, you are perfect the way that you are. God just wants you to do everything you want to do. All that matters is that you're happy. All that matters is that you're yourself. And all that matters is that you feel good about you. That's what Christianity is, that you are happy with how God made you and God's just going to come along for the ride and tell you that you're pretty. That, unfortunately, is not what all young Christian women hear, but a lot of young Christian women hear, and it is almost identical it's almost identical to what the secular world is telling them too, that the cure to everything that ails you is self-love and self-care. That is what the secular world is telling us. And unfortunately, we have Christians almost mimicking that word for word, but then attaching the name of Jesus onto that. And what I want to tell them is not, hey, don't love yourself. You should actually be self-loathing and self-deprecating. But no, if you struggle with insecurity or self-doubt or self-loathing or any of that, the answer is not self-love and narcissism. The answer is to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Christ. It is God's love. Because 
there's this funny conundrum that the world and this whole you are enough culture has put us in is and that is the problem is yourself but also the solution is yourself so you're depressed you're down you're anxious you're insecure well all you need to do is love yourself more well i have heard on more than one occasion people either messaging me or i've heard this uh to other people too people just kind of talking in general on social media is that I can't figure out how to love myself. I've tried to love myself. I've talked all the you know positive self-talk. I've looked in the mirror and I've told myself how awesome I am. I've tried to build self-confidence. I just can't do it. I must be defective. And my, my message for you is that you don't need to be on that exhausting track anymore. You don't have to do that because the answer doesn't lie in you. You're not going to be able to always uh, build yourself up. You're not going to be able to always love yourself enough to make yourself feel better, to pull yourself out of the rut. That's what the word of God is for. That is what Jesus is for. I mean, among obviously many much more important eternal things, but that is where your identity lies in Christ. And it's eternal. You don't have to worry about pulling yourself up anymore. You don't have to worry about mustering up self-love. God's love is way beyond sufficient for that. Um, And unfortunately, the world tells you that self-love and self-care actually is going to rejuvenate you. It doesn't. It just ends up burdening you um, because you just, you can't do it. It's exhausting. But thankfully, um, Jesus says, yoke is easy and his burden is light and his truth is much, much better than what the world gives. Absolutely. And that it, it's it's tragic to see that that one of the great heresies of the church today is exactly that. It's taking the humanistic ideology that, yes, you're the problem, but yes, you are also the solution, and just slapping yeah. the name of Christ on it. When, when right. what we see in scripture is the fact that we have become so self-centered is the foundation of the problem. It, it's right. it's a misaligned worship. We have exactly. we don't need just to say, uh, you know, have a little uh, redirection of of you know self pep talks. We need to be radically made new to stop worshiping ourselves. Period, right. and to begin worshiping God. Exactly, and so many of the problems that we see and the confusion that we see today is indicative of, symptomatic of worshiping the God of self. Yes. When you worship the God of self, the only values that matter are authenticity and autonomy. So that you are yourself and that you have control of your life. And so when we look at something like even as crazy as there's this concept, ethical non-monogamy, you can look it up all different kinds of dumb websites have ethical non-monogamy where it's totally, I can't even say it, ethical non-monogamy where you have, you know, open relationships. It's totally fine. You can have as many partners as you want. As long as they say, I thought this was so interesting. As long as the other person knows that you're doing it, that's where the ethical part comes in. But and then we ask a question that I know many of us have asked so many times of our secular, our, our, our secular counterparts is by what standard? But by what standard? Why? What makes that more ethical um, and what makes something unethical if you have no standard by which to compare this to? And so that is the confusion. That's the confusion that the world has that Christians just don't need to be in. When you have the standard of self, the God of self that you're worshiping, everything is going to be permitted based on how you feel. Yeah, so, so true, Allie. So suppose someone's listening to this 
very conversation today, and they've just really gone down the broken road of self-esteem and self-worship and trying to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, so to speak. And they're really just discouraged that they find themselves just uh, burdened by that whole broken road of, of false religion. So how would you point someone in that specific scenario to the hope of the gospel? What would you say to someone in that very condition? How would you share with them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I would say you are not enough, no matter how many times someone tells you that you are enough, that you're perfect the way you are. You are not enough. You can never be enough. And that's okay because Christ is sufficient and his power is made perfect in your weakness. You don't have to pretend to be stronger than you are. You don't have to pretend to be sufficient for yourself. A Christ died for you for because you are completely insufficient. You couldn't save yourself. You can't sanctify yourself. Yes, we are supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but the next part is, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All the things that are working in, in you for the better towards good uh, can be attributed to Christ. And so you can let go of that striving. Really what we see is that this whole live and let live, you do you, authentic, autonomous culture um, is as free as it sounds, is actually extremely legalistic because you are following this law of self that really no one knows how to follow. The standards are constantly shifting. We are constantly hearing different definitions of righteousness and right and wrong. And you don't have to do that. You can let go of that. You can be relieved of that burden. You can follow the word of God, which is clear. God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of peace. You don't have to wonder what the standards are for your life anymore. Jesus met those standards on your behalf and you can go to the word of God, use discernment from the Holy Spirit once you are saved uh, to uh, to understand what his will is. I am so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for the clarity that Jesus Christ brings because this world has got nothing to offer in the way of hope or in the way of wisdom and understanding. So very clear, Allie. Thank you so much for joining us today and for speaking the truth, pointing people to their hope in Christ. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you guys so much. Absolutely. So if you would like to join us for this year's G3 conference, Allie will be speaking to women at the conference in January. You can find out more information at g3conference.com, and we would love to have you there with us. May God bless, and may you turn to Jesus Christ for your hope and for your salvation. <music>